The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, welcome again. I'm very happy to be with you this morning and to have a chance to celebrate every moment of awareness and uh, study every moment of increasing freedom that we can come to together. And I, I've been noticing recently that you've received teachings on the three characteristics of conditioned existence. Um, dukkha, that quality of unsatisfactoriness that we find in life. Um, anicca, the quality of inconstancy. And anatta, often referred to as not-self. A couple of weeks ago, Mario Line gave a beautiful talk on anatta, not-self, that I very much appreciated. And one helpful point, among many, that she quoted from a sutta, described that the Buddha refused to answer the question of whether there is or is not a self, mentioning that whichever way he answered it would just lead to more confusion. And Marjoline made this useful suggestion that perhaps we should follow suit and not try to answer that abstract question, but rather simply notice when we feel a sense of self and the times we don't particularly feel it, even if the times we don't feel a sense of self might be fleeting or infrequent, no problem. And she shared some of the ways that this sense of self can hook us into dissatisfaction, stress, and suffering. When we identify with a sense of self or we uh, develop ideas about it. Um, so, you know, I my response to that uh, teaching on her part was, what a relief it would be not to have to worry <laughs> about this sense of self or not to get hung up on it. Um, because for most, if not many people, many if not most, I should say, one of the most painful arenas of experience arises with ways we define ourselves and others and become sort of stuck on or attached to ideas of ourselves um, that turn out to be inconstant, unreliable ideas, roles, jobs, appearances, ideas about our personalities, successes, failures, and just it goes on and on. Even how we meditate, who knows our experience, it gets very subtle. And we can get caught up in clinging uh, so easily as we hold on to views, self-views that don't help, like I'm irritable until I have my morning coffee. That's an idea you have about yourself. Um, I'm a good meditator, or I'm not good enough. Um, So I thought I'd elaborate a little on ways we can work with um, this sense of self that is problematic um, through a sutta that I've found to be fascinating over the years. It's the second sutta in the middle-length discourses. It's called the Sabha-Sava Sutta, all the asavas. So this Pali word, asava, is translated in various ways into English. Tanisru Bhikkhu translates it as fermentations. Bhikkhu Bodhi translates it as taints. 
and Bhante Sujato translates it as defilements, um, such that um, the title of the sutta, one way to take it, is all the defilements. So, you know, what does this have to do with the sense of self? Well, there are just these ways that the sense of self can get tied into the main defilements um, that are often discussed, which are greed, hatred, and delusion. And these, you know, another way to describe these uh, close relatives are things, common human problems that you hear quite a lot about in this practice. One is clinging or unhelpful forms of attachment to condition phenomena. It could be to people, things, situations, identities, something we have to have a certain way. And, you know, um, it's often referred to as I, me, and mine, that we get attached to things that we want to be a certain way. Um, the second, aversion. Resisting, denying, pushing away people, things, situations, anything that we think can't be or we don't want. And the third, delusion or ignorance, what we're unaware of. So in the Sava Sutta, it's recounted that the Buddha taught these three defilements are what he what is sometimes referred to as mental pollutants, um, things that get in our way that can be destroyed if we pay wise attention and also apply ourselves to abandoning unwise attention. So you may recognize those two things, paying wise attention and abandoning unwise, as wise effort or right effort. So the Buddha emphasizes first seeing what is fit for attention and what is unfit. So given the dissatisfaction, stress, or suffering that usually results from self-view, we can know that one subject that could be unfit for uh, continued attention are these myriad ways that we label ourselves, identify ourselves, have ideas about ourselves. Whether they're negative, uh, self-views that contain their own misery, or they're positive self-views that can become clinging to identities staying a certain way, which causes suffering when they change. Both of these lead in um, into the direction of more suffering. So the Buddha in this sutta, and this is one of the reasons I love it, gives this vivid demonstration of what at unwise attention to self-view might sound like. I found this very helpful over time, and it's a mouthful, but I'm going to read it to you. This is how one attends unwisely. Was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been what, what did I become in the past? Shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? Having been what, what shall I become in the future? Or else he is, one is inwardly perplexed about the present thus. Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where has this being come from? Where will it go? <laughs> so, end quote. And one reason I find this helpful is that it actually replicates the way that thinking about the self, especially about ideas we have about ourselves, 
quickly turns into this rumination tangle and creates a kind of mental proliferation. One idea leads to another. And that's confusing in and of itself. It also gives me a a feeling of the futility of mental proliferation. Was I this or that in the past? Was it okay or not okay? Will I be this way in the future or won't I? Will I succeed or fail? How am I or what am I right now? It's exhausting (laughs) just to hear it. And so for me, it conveys how it's delving into useless speculation when we do this kind of thing. For one thing, in whose opinion am I or was I this or that? Or will I be this or that? Not only is no one else a good in a good position to judge us in this way, but we're not either. <laughs> Since we often see each other through filters and biases that we've developed, conditions we've developed about ourselves over the years. The Buddha goes on to say that this kind of thinking results in ideas that are speculative views. And the way he describes this also is um, really rich for me. The thicket of views, the wilderness of views, the contortion of views, the vacillation of views, the fetter of views. So do you get the idea none of that is helpful? Um, Getting even more direct, he says, Quote, the untaught ordinary person is not freed from suffering, end quote, in this way. By contrast, a well-taught noble dis- disciple understands what things are fit for attention and what things are unfit for attention, and so does not attend to the things that are not suitable, instead paying attention to what is suitable. So to to frame this again in terms of what Marieline shared, you know, our thought, sometimes we will have a feeling of self-view, but the idea is not to proliferate on that. When we notice it, we notice it. So in this sutta that I'm talking with you about, this partic- particular section of the sutta ends by saying that when one attends wisely in this way, three fetters, Fetters are barriers to ultimate freedom and happiness. Three fetters are abandoned in one. Identity view, doubt, and misapprehension of precepts and observances. So identity view is just this self-view that we've been talking about. And doubt, a lot of the speculative thinking or um, identification we do around self has a quality of doubt in it. But this third, misapprehension of precepts and observances, I'm not going to touch on in this talk. So these fetters are defilements. Um, and the Buddha is saying they should be given up by seeing. So this is what we do in this practice. We see what arises. We notice it. The Buddha then goes on in this sutta to describe six other means to give up or abandon defilements after this first abandoning of them by seeing. And I want to emphasize that although you could take the sutta to be a lot of doing, uh, that need not be your focus. It doesn't have to be forced. Oftentimes what happens in the seeing, in the being aware again and again of certain familiar conditioning or habits of mind, these things start to offer us choice. And we let go many times naturally if we see it often enough. 
So the second, uh, so I'll just list these six other means besides abandoning by seeing. Second is abandoning by restraining the six sense doors. Third, abandoning by using only what is needed. Four, abandoning by enduring the unpleasant. Five, abandoning by avoiding dangers. Six, abandoning by removing unhelpful thoughts. And seven, abandoning by developing mindfulness and the enlightenment factors. So we'll spend a little time with each of these methods of helping us get relief from the tyranny of self-views and self-identification. So this next piece of advice the, the Buddha gives is urging, urging his followers practice restraining the six sense doors. So most of our engagement with the conditioned world, both external and internal, is through the six senses, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and the Buddhists include this powerful sixth sense of thinking. If we're not mindful of these when they arise at the sense stores, if we're, we don't kind of watch them come up, um, if we don't have mindfulness with the earliest appearance of sight, a whiff of smell, uh, some sound that comes up, the, you know, any of these uh, things take, can take off. We become engaged with what we've heard or seen or felt or thought. And it's really easy from there to slip into views about each uh, sense and the associated defilement. So I'll just say some examples. Oh, that's beautiful. Maybe I need to get one for myself. Or I can't stand that noise. I'm going to call the police. <laughs> or, oh, delicious i think i'll have more <laughs> um so you know these are examples of how we get caught at the sense store and then we can get pulled into um or you know ah there this project is just going the wrong way i'm going to lose my job even thinking you know can proliferate can start to develop these defilements or hindrances so anytime we can, and this practice is really devoted to awareness moment to moment, when we can have awareness of what's arising in seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, or thinking, we can catch harmful views, self-views, before they begin to roll into a lot more. And why is this not easy? Well, our culture is full of images and words in social media, entertainment, and news that reinforce the self-views that we've conditioned. It's full of sense, ple sense pleasures, another area that we have a fair amount of challenge, sense pleasures to taste and touch that can lead to dissatisfaction and disappointment in ourselves over time. And all the stimuli from our culture can start trains of thought about ourselves, comparing mind, all kinds of thoughts about ourselves that are not helpful. So these six senses are hooks that drag us into more self-view and self-identification. 
So following this practice of restraining, first we see it, then we restrain or remain vigilant at the sense doors. The Buddha next discusses defilements to abandon, be abandoned by what he calls using. Here he's talking about using resources that are necessary to protect and sustain our lives, but not varying into greed uh, for the sense pleasures of them. So he points out the wisdom consists of clothing ourselves for protection from the elements against insects, of which many of us are experiencing a proliferation this summer with all the rain, um, and for covering the private parts. So what a contrast to our culture's obsession with how we adorn ourselves to make a statement of personal identity, to attract other people's interest, including attracting others for romance and sex. These are, you know, huge arenas of human engagement, but also self-view and identification that can lead to dissatisfaction, stress, and suffering. Of course, there are benefits to clothing ourselves. We, we want to adapt to weather and temperature. We want to avoid insects. I, I was on a retreat recently, and I definitely tucked my pants into my socks because I didn't want ticks. So, you know, um, and of course, we connect to each other with love and sexual activity. But I'm guessing each one of us can come up with many ways. We've spent more money and time on reinforcing ideas about ourselves through the medium of clothing than we'd care to admit. You know, greed, aversion, and delusion are just, you know, really endemic uh, there. And the Buddha next turns attention to uh, defilement. So, so he's offered us seeing, restraining, and using the resources we need properly. So he, this extends also to food and to medicine, you know, or substances that affect the body and consciousness. We can go too far with um, eating, um, and we can, we can also restrain or starve ourselves uh, of food excessively. Um, and we can um, use substances in ways that are more for entertainment than for our medical health. So he discouraged any of those kinds of uses of things and encouraged wisdom. And then the next area he turned to were defilements that could be abandoned by enduring. So this is interesting. Instead of letting mental proliferation take off, when we're physically uncomfortable due to conditions we didn't expect, we can persist with moment-to-moment awareness. Um, I, I was once in a dance class, and people would, you know, there was always this um, discussion of whether the room was too cold or too whatever. And the teacher said, you know, just let your body be aware of the feelings it's having, like the coolness, but don't don't get into that. Just, you know, you can, you, you can be a few temperatures cooler and it's not going to kill you. <laughs> and I noticed, this was before I had a practice, and I noticed from then on, she was right. I could just accept that the room was cold and be okay with it. Um, I was on this wilderness retreat that I mentioned recently, and one night we had high winds. My tent seemed to be collapsing on both sides as the winds whipped the coastal areas where we were uh, camping one night. 
Um, and I, I thought, oh, I can spend the next few hours in apprehension or even fear if I let my mind run. Like, is my tent going to collapse? What's going to happen here? And instead, I decided it would be, it would take much more powerful winds to blow my body weight away. So I decided I should just fall asleep and get a good night's rest. Now, unusually, I was able to just, bam, that worked. I told, I once, I was on a retreat where I heard Sayadaw Utejaniya say, your mind knows what to do. Just tell it to go to sleep. And this was one of those times when my mind knew what to do. I told it to go to sleep. And um, that was enough to spare me a lot of stress or just little worry like, oh, my tent's collapsing. So, you know, this was abandoned by enduring. I endured the winds. Um, we can also endure, the Buddha points out, ill-spoken, unwelcome words. So instead of going into mental proliferation about who or what we are or whether or not someone shares our self-view or has other unwanted ideas about us and is saying something that indicates that or says something unpleasant that it doesn't feel good to hear, we can drop that kind of proliferation right in its tracks. So one of the best ways to do this is a saying that I've heard used in AA. What others think of me is none of my business. So true. Why make somebody else's mental proliferation your problem by getting obsessed with their ill-spoken, unwelcome words? Why get obsessed in that way? So, um, finally, uh, the Buddha notes that we can endure even unpleasant painful sensations in the body. So, you know, as we go through life, uh, encounter disease, injury, or aging, we do experience discomfort, even pain in the body. And we can learn to become aware of the sensations and their their changes moment to moment, actually. Uh, very often, if you really study even very, you know, high degrees of pain in yourself, you'll notice they're not monolithic. They they do fluctuate. There are ways to pay attention to them um, and work with the mind's relationship to pain without getting lost in catastrophic or despairing views about it. And believe me, I don't underestimate how difficult it is to be with pain or physical discomfort. But the Buddha discovered ways, and I've, I know there's some pretty amazing monastics in our Western uh, scene of, of Buddhism, Theravadan Buddhism, that have, that endure high degrees of pain, and they've learned how to be mindful of it in a way that it doesn't feed it. So this is, these are some of the ways the Buddha suggested uh, abandoning hindrances by enduring. So he's saying some things may not go away. We may have to endure them. They may be conditions that are present. And certainly with those that lead to self-view, which can include, um, oh no, my body is decaying with arthritis. It hurts. I've thought these thoughts. It hurts this much right now when I'm 69. What's going to happen when I'm 80? You know, if I'm lucky enough to be 80. 
So we can get lost in catastrophic ideas or despairing ideas about body sensation, you know, uh, things we have to, conditions we have to endure, including other people's unwelcome, painful words. Then the sutta next turns to defilements to be abandoned by avoiding. So sometimes we have to endure, but the Buddha acknowledged sometimes we have to avoid. So he points out if we're wise, some of the things we will will avoid will include a wild elephant, snake, cliff, sewer. In other words, keep yourself physically safe. Don't go looking for trouble. And if we reflect wisely, he notes, we will avoid wandering to unsuitable resorts and associating with bad friends. So this is wisdom too. If our goal is to become free of dissatisfaction, stress, and suffering, it isn't going to help us to go to places that incite Craving for sense pleasures, um, bad resort, excuse me, unsuitable resorts, you know, places that we know are temptation. Don't go down the cookie aisle if you're addicted to cookies. <laughs> um, and also, it's not going to help us to associate with people who cause us to reinforce self identities that lead to unskillful behavior. You know, the one of the beautiful things about uh, 12-step programs is that they help people replace companions that will lead to more drinking or drug use or difficult uh, addictions with people who are trying to get through it day by day, moment by moment, who are right there with you. Let, let's recover from this. Let's get sober. Let's get clean. And the same is true in just ordinary life. Is it going to help you to be around a friend whose attitudes and uh, behaviors no longer reflect the ways you'd like to live, the qualities you'd like to cultivate? Or is it better to develop Kalyana Mita, you know, spiritual friends like in this um, sitting group where we can work with qualities we'd like to develop? So uh, what, um, what comes to mind for me here is a phrase that is related, um, how to cultivate equanimity, which is, I am the owner of my own karma. My happiness or unhappiness depends upon my actions, not upon my wishes. So I have a role. You know, I don't own all of karma, but I have a role in making choices in where I hang out and who I hang out with to cultivate greater happiness through my actions, through my thought, through my speech, through my behaviors. So I love this area that the Buddha is uh, encouraging us to cultivate positive qualities and to abandon defilements by avoiding what's unwholesome, what's unhelpful. So the next, I mean, these are really, I love the way these suttas kind of um, elaborate these different nuances, these different areas, and give us food for thought, food for, hmm, is this helping me or not helping me? So the next one, 
that the Buddha suggests we can abandon are defilements that can be abandoned by um, removing. So the Buddha says that one reflecting wisely does not tolerate an arisen thought of sensual desire. One abandons it, removes it, does away with it, and annihilates it. One does not tolerate an arisen thought of ill will or cruelty likewise nor what any any of what the buddha calls arisen evil unwholesome states we can think of them as unwholesome and that they do evil or they do harm to us so once our practice has developed to the point that we begin to notice thoughts um that take us in an unwholesome direction um, whether it's subtle or it's major, that we can stop them. We can stop unwholesome thoughts in their tracks. If you see uh, a pizza a, you know, delivery car go by and you start thinking about pizza and you just allow yourself to keep thinking about pizza, that's not going to help you if you need to avoid pizza. <laughs> so you can drop the thought and we can drop all kinds of thoughts. When we're sitting in awareness, once we become aware of a tendency to think something that is not going to help us, we learn over time. You know, at first we're caught in it. We come back from it and we say, oh, wow, I was caught in a whole train of thought. I was preoccupied. And that's fine. That coming back and going, oh, whoops, I was caught in thought is helpful. And then we catch ourselves sometimes in the middle of it, like, whoops, I'm thinking, I'm not meditating anymore. Um, and then we can come to the point where we can feel that first thought, even physically feel it arising or just catch that tendency to want to think, and we can drop it. So this becomes a strength. It becomes one of our superpowers. Awareness leads to this superpower of becoming aware over time. By the way, I'm not suggesting this is quick. It's over time we start to see our own tendencies of thinking that aren't helpful and how we can, am I going to feed that today right now? I don't think so. I don't want to. Let me just drop that. Um, So this comes from consistent practice of awareness, consistent practice of mindfulness. So be patient with this. But we can abandon defilements by removing. We drop it. We leave it alone. We don't touch it. Um, or we deliberately annihilate it. You know, sometimes with doubt, the thing to do is doubt the doubt. You can annihilate doubt by saying, let's say it's self-doubt. You know, I don't think, I don't think I can this, or I don't think I'm that. You can say, well, what makes you, what makes you believe that's true? Maybe it's possible. Why not just doubt the doubt? So, um, these are some of the things that, abandonment by removing can offer. And then finally, the Buddha suggests that there are defilements to be abandoned by developing. And here he's reinforcing the power of developing awareness, mindfulness. He suggests that by developing the seven factors of awakening, mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity, as we 
work with practice, these unfold in the direction of cessation of suffering. And by the way, those, you know, mindfulness is the starting point. Awareness is the starting point. From that, these other things will tend to unfold if we devote ourselves to coming back again and again to awareness, to mindfulness. And as often as we can, bring it coming back to awareness. What am I aware of now? Oh, you know, just just making it a habit, this continuity. And that will lead naturally. You know, we, as I've said before, it can sound like the sutta is telling us, do this, do this, do this. And we can do those things as a matter of choice once we've cultivated awareness to the point where we're like, oh, wait a minute. Do I really need to uh, be in this difficulty right now? Or do I have a choice? And what, it will happen that you will find you have a choice, or it will happen that you find something will spontaneously fall away. I was struck early in my practice after a few years that I would converse with some of my fellow uh, Dharma practitioners, and a lot of us said, hey, have you noticed that you've stopped, like you don't go for much entertainment anymore, like you've stopped going to movies and you don't go to concerts, and like, what's up with that? (laughs) <laughs> and we realized it would just it just fell away as an interest not that we never went to them but we used to we were noticing that we used to kind of incessantly fill our weekends with going to this and that entertainment and it just kind of dropped and our minds had become interested in other things so that's what i mean by some of this behavior will just uh happen naturally as we cultivate awareness it all unfolds from there. And as Ari recommended last week, all we need to do is be aware in a relaxed way of anything and everything that's arising. If we build this continuity of awareness, it's going to unfold in the direction of freedom. And we develop wisdom about what we're experiencing. So he suggested wisdom arises. And this Sabah Savas I'm sorry, I'm not saying it right. Sabah Asava Sutta is about the development of wisdom. Over time, we become aware that it's better to adapt to a lot of incoming stimuli, especially those that touch on sense pleasure and self-view by um, seeing that they're there, being aware with mindfulness, restraining tendencies that are going to arise as stimuli uh, at the sense doors, using only what's needed and not getting caught up in sense pleasures and self-view around what we use, clothing, food, etc. Enduring the unpleasant when it's conditions that we have no control over, avoiding dangers, not putting ourselves in harm's way, Removing arisen unhelpful thoughts, when we can just drop them, drop them. And developing mindfulness and these enlightenment factors that roll forth from it. So with that, I want to thank you um, for your kindness and attention. And we have time now 